Good morning. Chris has you all warmed up. We're primed for that. How many of you watched the Winter Olympics this year? My uh, <clears throat> my favorite event is figure skating, and I waited and waited and waited, and finally, toward the end of the Olympics, they uh, they had the figure skating competitions. Um, I just love to watch the way that that the skaters um, can do all of those things, and particularly with the beauty and the grace um, that they're able to do them in. With I have trouble enough walking, uh, let alone trying to do a a circle with some skates on. Uh, but I, I think the the most uh, striking performance was the performance that eventually won the gold medal. Uh, for the uh, pairs competition. Uh, the Russians, as you know, won that this year. Uh, Ekaterina Gordiva and Sergei Grinkov uh, won the gold medal. And it was so beautiful to watch the way that they worked together. The mutual, comp- or the mutual uh, cooperation and the beauty and the grace of the synchronized motion and movements between the two. Uh, they each had a part to play, and they each played it wonderfully. Uh, neither was more prominent than the other. Uh, neither of them tried to compete for the attention of the crowd, but rather they tried to complement one another as they were on the ice. And that's really the goal that we have in marriage as well. That's, that's what we've been talking about for the last several weeks. Uh, yet I know that uh, just... Uh, as with Ekaterina and Sergei, uh, the performance that we give uh, on the ice in our homes each week is not always uh, of Olympic proportions. A lot of times we, uh, we fall short uh, in our marriages of uh, the, uh, the goal that we have. Uh, our intent the last several weeks has been to, to do some teaching on this topic and to encourage you and to try and strengthen you. But I know that, that several of you are struggling. Uh, several of us are struggling in our marriages. Uh, we don't want you to be discouraged if you're in that, uh, in that boat right now. Uh, we certainly don't want you to, to despair. Uh, and least of which, we don't want you to feel like you're the only one that's, uh, that's hurting because many... Uh, of us are hurting to uh, to grow and to become all that God wants us to be, both as wives and as husbands. Uh, the secret to the uh, the Russian skaters' success is that each of them had a part to play, and they played it wonderfully. They didn't try and compete with one another, but instead they sought to complement each other. And that's the principle that we want to look at this morning: the principle of mutual cooperation in marriage that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 5 and I'd invite you to turn there uh, with me Ephesians chapter 5 beginning in verse 21 now as you're turning I I need to say that I know that as soon as I said Ephesians chapter 5 there were several of you who uh, took a deep breath Uh, I teach this passage whenever I marry a couple as part of the, the wedding ceremony and I can usually tell by the looks on uh, the guests' face, faces, that uh, that this passage is going to have a polarizing effect. Uh, sometimes I see husbands that are smiling and so glad that that uh, that I'm teaching on it, 
And other times I see uh, wives with kind of sad and sometimes scornful looks on their faces. Um, Two days ago, as I was sitting around the dinner table, uh, my seven-year-old daughter Jenny asked me uh, if I was preaching this Sunday. And I told her I was, and and she said, well, good, Dad, I want to come and hear. And I said, well, honey, I don't know if you're going to understand what we're talking about. And, I, and she said, uh, well, what, what's the subject? What are you talking about? And I said, well, one of the things we're going to talk about is uh, learning to obey. She thought about it for a minute and she said, you're right, Dad. I don't want to hear that. <laughs> and I think that's the attitude that, uh, that we oftentimes have as we turn to this passage. The, uh, the growth of the Christian feminist movement in our country is in large part the result of passages like this and others uh, that uh, in the words of the, uh, uh, the infamous uh, Bill Edlund uh, are passages that are designed to put women in their place. If you read his article yesterday, you know that, that he would classify this passage as one uh, such passage written by uh, St. Paul, the uh, neurotic misogynist. I love to quote the man from McCall. Uh, this morning, I'd like, you to, I'd like to take a fresh look at, uh, at this passage, and I want to challenge you to let the scriptures say what they say. Let's try and come to this passage without any preconceived notions of, of what this is all about, and let's try and figure out what the Apostle Paul was talking about and how it relates to us. Now, the passage, the context actually begins in verse 18 with the command to be filled with the Spirit. A command to be filled is simply a command to let Christ reign in our lives, to let him have control. Uh, It's similar to what Jesus said in John 15 when he commanded his uh, disciples to abide in the vine. Uh, It's to cling to Christ and let him be our source of life and the one to give us direction, the one to steer the ship that we're on. And the result of being filled with the Spirit, as we're told in verses 19 through 21, is that we begin to uh, speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. In other words, there's mutual cooperation of uh, worship. Uh, There's mutual ministry that takes place. And secondly, there's singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Uh, We have a joy in our heart. Uh, Our heart rejoices in knowing that God is is directing our lives. Uh, Thirdly, always giving thanks for all things. We have a thankful spirit. Uh, an uncomplaining spirit. We don't um, look at what God is doing in our life and and uh, point the finger at him and, and uh, try and uh, bargain him into uh, giving us something better than, than what we've got. But we thank him for what he's doing. And then uh, fourthly, in verse 21, uh, there's mutual submission. Uh, my translation puts it this way, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ, but actually it's just another participle uh, in the original, which describes again the result of being filled with the Spirit. There's a mutual submission uh, one to another. Now, that's that idea of submission is, has somewhat become a dirty word uh, in our culture. Uh, it's at variance with everything that our society teaches Uh, Our world promotes uh, freedom and liberation, uh, independence rather than interdependence. Uh, Our world promotes rights without responsibilities. Uh, And our world promotes selfishness. And frankly, selfishness comes very easy 
for me, and I would guess that it comes easy for you as well, because of the sinful nature that we have. We would all prefer to be served rather than to serve others. And the, the mere idea of, of submitting our lives to someone else suggests that we might have to do something that we don't want to do. So it's a difficult pill to swallow. Um, notice verse 21, though, which really sets the context. It sets the stage for everything that follows. Uh, says that we are to all submit. Uh, if you are a citizen of this country, you submit to the government. If you're an employee of someone else, uh, as I am, you submit to your employer. Uh, if, you're, uh, if you've identified yourself with this church, with this fellowship of believers, then you have submitted yourself in some sense to the leadership, uh, to the elders of this church. So submission is not necessarily a dirty word. It's, in fact, something that all of us are obliged uh, to follow. All of us fall into the role of being subservient to someone else. Um, you'll notice that Paul says that we are to do this in the fear of Christ or out of respect for him. And I think he suggests there both uh, a motive and a means for what we're to do. Uh, our motive uh, is um, to uh, submit to Christ out of deep reverence and respect for him because we, we love him, because he is the Lord of our lives. And then the means is uh, out of dependence and out of, uh, out of that desire to, uh, to draw our strength and our life and our very uh, sustenance and ability to obey from him. So submission is something that we're all obliged to do, and it's not a dirty word. Now what follows in, in verses 22 through uh, the rest of chapter 5 and actually through verse 9 of chapter 6 is uh, a description of what submission looks like. Luther called this passage the uh, Hausstafeln, which in, in German means house tables or tables of uh, household duties. Uh, verses 22 through 33 are a description of the, uh, the role of husbands and wives and the way that they're each to submit to one another. Uh, verses 1 through 4 of chapter 6 is a description of uh, parents and children. And verses 5 through 9 of chapter 6 are a description of uh, masters and slaves. First of all, let's begin by looking at Paul's instruction to wives in verses 22 through 24. He says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Basically, Paul's command to wives is a command to submit. I mentioned that Submission is not a popular idea, and it's particularly unappealing when we come to verse 22 because now Paul points the finger and he says, wives, submit. He doesn't suggest it. He commands it. Um, I think one of the reasons it's unpopular is because it's, it's often misunderstood by both wives and husbands. And because of that misunderstanding, it's oftentimes rejected uh, very quickly, out of hand, um, I think the mere definition of submission is unappealing, particularly the definition that our culture has given it. I was reading in Webster's Dictionary this last week uh, under the different 
derivatives of the word submit. As a noun, submission means to yield, to give in, to be subservient, and abasement. As an adjective, it means non-resisting, docile, timid, unassertive, passive, subdued. Uh, As a verb, it means yield, surrender, give in, succumb, bite the dust, lay down arms, raise the white flag, cry or say uncle, resign oneself, acquiesce, throw in the towel, give up the ship, and grin and bear it. Now be honest with me, gals. How many of you want to submit like that? Go ahead, raise your hand. Husbands aren't looking. Okay, I don't blame you. I don't blame you. Uh, Unfortunately, submission uh, is very unappealing because of the the way that we've described it in our culture. And I think as we see, as we read on uh, in this text, that Paul had something very different in mind. I think another reason why submission is misunderstood and, and rejected so quickly is because of the abuses that we see. Uh, let's face it, we as men are sinful. Uh, we oftentimes uh, abuse our rights or our uh, responsibility as the leader in the home. And uh, the result is that oftentimes submission is just kind of rejected because of the abuses. You know, a submission operates within the context of a spiritual battle. There's God's concept of submission and there's Satan's concept or the world's concept of submission and they're warring against one another. And we as men are caught right there in between trying to do what God wants us to do and yet struggling to be the kind of men that that he intends us to be. Uh, So there are abuses which make submission unappealing. I think another reason submission is misunderstood is, is that it oftentimes suggests inferiority that women are inferior to men because men have been given this responsibility or this role of headship. But actually, nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, Christ, when he came to earth, submitted to God, and yet Christ was in no way inferior to God the Father. He was equal. Paul makes that very clear in in Philippians chapter 2. There is in no sense... Uh, inequality suggested in this passage. Now, the Jews of that day had developed uh, a prejudice against women. Uh, The rabbi's daily prayers were this. uh, I thank God that I'm neither a a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. And yet Paul, the very writer who writes this passage that we're looking at here, writes, in contrast to what the rabbis taught in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you all are one in Jesus Christ. In other words, there is an equality uh, before God, an equality of standing that we all have, whether we're men or whether we're women. And in no way does Paul mean to imply or infer in Ephesians chapter 5, that women are inferior to men. In fact, it, it merely has to do with roles or the functions that we're to play in a marriage relationship. Uh, another misconception is that if a wife submits, she becomes a non-person, that she loses her identity. Uh, but that's not true either. 
Uh, many of you who know my wife know that she is very different than I am. Our personalities are different. Our uh, pursuits are different. Our likes and, list- and dislikes are often different. She is not a little uh, robot that's become just like me, but she is a, a, a complete person. She is my equal. She is the one who serves me and the one to whom I serve. Um, so you don't lose your identity through submission either. And then lastly, I think another misconception is that uh, if a wife submits, uh, that's tantamount to blind obedience. And as, as David so aptly put it last week, that's just not true. A wife does not have to comply or submit in every instance. Uh, if a wife is, is commanded or asked by her husband to do something that is sinful, she can respectfully say, no, no, I cannot do that. I'm sorry. I love you. I want to follow your leadership, but I can't do that. Um, what is submission, then, since it's not all of those things? Well, the word that Paul uses here is the Greek word hupotasso, which literally means to arrange uh, or to order under something. A definition that I ran into this week that I'm still not sure I understand goes like this. Uh, submission means to voluntarily organize oneself in an orderly fashion so as to fill out a pattern that represents a complete whole. And if anyone understands that, come and talk to me afterwards. Explain it to me. Uh, actually, I think what submission means Uh, And this is true of any relationship that we're in in which we must submit. It means that we voluntarily play the part that God has assigned to us so as to work together, to voluntarily play the part that God has assigned to us so that we can work together in mutual cooperation. That's what we saw when we saw the two Russian ice skaters beautifully working in concert with one another. Um, And for a wife, that means that she needs to play the part or the role that God has for her. And it begins by acknowledging your husband's headship or leadership uh, in the home. I have not clue one why God assigned to men the role of leading. I don't understand it. We as men are not any smarter than women. We're not any more inclined to give leadership. Uh, And usually, we're not as far along in our spiritual lives uh, as our wives are. And yet, God has assigned us this role. Uh, And all I can say is that God must have known what he was doing and that we can trust him. Uh, A reporter once asked uh, Mrs. Einstein why, or rather asked her if she understood the theory of relativity. And she thought about it for a minute and she said, no, I, I really don't, but I know Albert And I know he can be trusted. I think that's the attitude that we need to have with God. Because we know him, he can be trusted. And because he's assigned to us these roles, we can accept them as God's gift to us and trust him. God has designed the husband to be the leader, to be the head of his home. And he's assigned the wife the role of coming alongside as an equal to complement, to complete, and to help her husband. There's a story that's told uh, about a mayor of an East Coast city who was walking one day with his wife down the street. 
and uh, they passed this building uh, that was under construction. And from up above, they heard a voice from a workman who hollered down to uh, the mayor's wife. He said, hey, Bonnie, how you doing? And his wife looked up and said, oh, Fred, doing fine. How are you? And they exchanged pleasantries for a minute. And then they, she and her husband went down the street. And uh, her husband turned to his wife and, and said, honey, who was that? And she said, oh, that's one of my old boyfriends. Husband got very quiet, didn't say a word. And a few minutes later, he said, well, you know, dear, if you had married him, you'd just be the wife of a construction worker. To which his wife replied, no, dear, if, if I had married him, he would have been mayor of the city. <laughs> you see, yeah, some of you wives want to apply. See, that, that's the point. A wife has been assigned the task of coming alongside, of complimenting, of completing, of making of us as men all that God intends us to be. We can't be all that God intends us to be without them, without that special gal. She's a gift. Well, gals, how do you begin to submit? Or what does submission look like in practice? Let me suggest four things. First of all, submission begins by entrusting yourself to God. Your hope has got to be in God. Uh, And the reason, quite frankly, is that uh, most of us men are bozos. Uh, Most of us are going to fail you, uh, and we're going to let you down. We're not going to give you the kind of leadership uh, on a consistent basis that you need. And because of that, you've got to find your hope in God. Uh, David quoted 1 Peter last week, uh, chapter 2, verse 23, which says, While being reviled, Jesus did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And that's what you gals have got to do. You've got to find your hope in God, and you've got to find it in him daily. Because we're going to let you down, because we're imperfect, and because we're sinful. And if you don't, you don't find your hope in God, you're either going to be terribly frustrated and disappointed, or you're going to be itching to grab those reins of leadership and to take them back. And neither, neither one is a very appealing uh, idea. I know this is difficult. I know it's difficult. And if you're struggling with it right now, I want to suggest a couple questions to think about. Uh, ladies, uh, are you believing God in your circumstances Or are you allowing those circumstances to overwhelm you? Are you believing God in those circumstances, or are you allowing them to overwhelm you? And secondly, and perhaps more importantly, is God big enough to take care of your husband without your help? Is God big enough to take care of your husband without your help? A second thing that I would suggest as it relates to uh, how to, to submit Uh, is after you've entrusted yourself to God, sink your roots into him. Nothing will drive you to God more than submission. Nothing will drive you to him more than submission. Sink your roots in him, and as you do, you're going to grow in grace and beauty and strength of character, which will eventually make submission easier, perhaps even a delight. Third, and this is, I suppose, where it gets real practical, Uh, show your husband respectful behavior. 
Paul closes this chapter by wrapping it up, saying, let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. Wives, uh, wives, show your husband respect. Grant him honor and appreciation and consideration. Let him know that you're his biggest fan. Let him know that you believe in him. That doesn't mean that you never offer your input. It doesn't mean that you sit back quietly and agree with everything that he says. It doesn't mean that you have to like uh, the direction that the family is headed. It doesn't mean that you sit back and you never say anything. But I suppose it does mean that during those times when you can't come to a mutual decision, you let your husband have the tie-breaking vote and quietly rest in God. And that brings me to, uh, to my fourth suggestion. Let your husbands lead. Ladies, let your husbands lead. One of the greatest impediments to leadership is competition for control. Uh, if you've been leading up until now and you want to change, uh, then hand him the reins. Let him know that you're willing to let him lead. I know that may be fearful. I know that may be terribly scary because of where he may take the family. But let him lead. Uh, and cast that anxiety, cast that fear and that tension on the Lord because he cares for you. And then as Paul says in verse 22, gals, do it in the same way that you submit to the Lord. And you know, the Lord's leadership in our life is not always easy to follow. Sometimes the Lord takes us where we don't want to go. But submit to your husbands in the same way. Elizabeth Elliot uh, who knows much about marriage and, and these roles, writes this. She says, Acceptance of the divinely ordered hierarchy means acceptance of authority. First of all, God's authority, and then those lesser authorities which he has ordained. A husband and a wife are both under God, but their positions are not the same. A wife is to submit herself to her husband. The mature man acknowledges that he did not earn or deserve his place by superior intelligence, virtue, strength, or amiability. The mature woman acknowledges that submission is the will of God for her, and obedience to this will is no more a sign of weakness in her than it was in the Son of Man when he said, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. Submission in no way suggests inferiority, in no way suggests inequality. It's simply a function that God has designed so that we as couples might win the gold. Now, what does Paul have to say to husbands? Let's begin reading in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh.
Now, there's several observations I'd like to make here in this section to men. First of all, you'll notice that Paul addresses seven verses to men in contrast to three verses to women. And I think that's instructive. I think it suggests that we as men uh, need this twice as much as our wives. Secondly, you'll notice that the command is basically a command to love our wives. Paul doesn't, doesn't say husbands lead. He says husbands love. I think what that suggests is that we as husbands should never ask or demand submission of our wives. We're very tempted to do that, particularly when, uh, when we want to get our own way and we think we're right and we're trying to make a decision together, but it's just not coming to that. Uh, it's tempting to, to very quickly whip uh, Ephesians 5 on our wives, but we're not to do that. It's our wives' responsibility before the Lord to submit. It's not our responsibility to get her to submit to us. Our responsibility is simply to love. Now the pattern that Paul describes here is the pattern of Christ and the church. Christ loved the church. And how did he do that? Well, he did that sacrificially and selflessly by giving himself up for us. And that's our model. The wife is commanded to give in to her husband. A husband is commanded to give up himself for his wife. Wife is commanded to love with the highest form of human love known to man, the kind of love that we're to have for God. The husband is commanded to love in an even greater way, with divine love. And Christ's model is not a a model of dominance. It's a model of, of servanthood. If you want to know how Christ leads the church, look at John 13, where Jesus lays aside his garments and he takes up the role of a servant with this little wash basin and a towel. And he crawls along on the floor of the upper room and washes his disciples' feet out of love. Mark 10, 45 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It's a verse that describes Jesus' purpose statement for living, his purpose for coming. And it goes like this. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for the many. You see, that ought to be our theme verse, husbands, with our wives and in our marriage, to serve and not to be served. Uh, Because that's what godly love does. Godly love doesn't demand its own way. Jesus never manipulated the people who followed him. Uh, He never led out of a position of strength. He always led instead out of loving sensitivity to other people's needs. He never dominates. He never intrudes. He never coerces. He never forces his way into any of our lives. He knocks at the door and he waits for us to open the door, as as Revelation 3 says, because he's a gentleman. And men, that's the kind of leadership that we're enjoined to give our wives here. He isn't the boss. We shouldn't be the boss. Uh, He's a loving Savior. And we should be a loving Savior for our wife and for our family. John Stott, in, in describing... The, the husband's role says this. 
He says, to our minds, the word authority suggests power and dominion and even oppression. We picture the authoritative husband as a domineering figure who makes all the decisions himself, who issues commands and expects obedience, inhibits and suppresses his wife, and so prevents her from growing into the mature and fulfilled person. But this is not at all the kind of headship which the apostle is describing, whose model is Jesus Christ. Certainly, headship implies a degree of leadership and initiative, as when Christ came to woo and to win his bride. But more specifically, it implies sacrifice, self-giving for the sake of the beloved, as when Christ gave himself for his bride. And then he says this, this, catch this, if headship means power in any sense, then it's power to care, not to crush. It's power to serve, not to dominate. It's power to facilitate self-fulfillment, not to frustrate or destroy it. And in all of this, the standard of the husband's love is to be the cross of Christ, on which he surrendered himself even to death in his selfless love for his bride. You see, that's the kind of leadership that God calls us as men to give our wives. God calls us to express care rather than control. And a leadership that's characterized by lordship, or excuse me, by saviorhood rather than lordship. And notice that Christ's love for the church is unconditional. He doesn't say, well, when when we measure up, then... I'll give myself for you. No, he uses agape love, godly love, the unconditional love, the ongoing love. That's the kind of love we need to have for our wives. It's the kind of love that says to them, I'll love you no matter what. I'll always be there for you under any conditions. It's the kind of love that says, I accept you just the way you are. You don't have to be perfect. I'm not perfect. I understand that. I love you and I accept you. It's not based on her performance, but it's based on her worth as God's gift to us. And men, we need to verbalize this to our wives. We can't be like the husband who told his wife when she complained that he never loved her, uh, who said, uh, I told you 17 years ago when I married you I loved you, and if, if I change my mind I'll let you know. That won't do. We need to communicate. We need to let our wives know that we love them, to affirm that love often. And we need to show it because, frankly, uh, actions speak a whole lot louder than words. We need to let them know that we care. Let me ask you men to consider this. Write this question down and think about it this next week. What says to your wife, I love you? What says to your wife, I love you? Let me suggest some things. Communication. One of the things that that Cherry longs for is for me to talk to her and to listen to her. And the most loving thing I can do, and I don't do it often enough, I confess my failure here, is to walk in the door at 5.30 in the evening and pull up a chair or sit on the counter next to her as she's getting dinner together and ask her how her day went and to tell her what happened in my day. I don't know why that's so hard for us as men. Perhaps we're just uh, tired of talking or tired of listening by the time we get home. I know for myself, I, I come home not 
not to serve, but to be served. And to have my wife give her life and ransom for, for, my, for my comfort. Uh, I'd much prefer to just sit down, have a glass of iced tea, read the paper and be left alone. But that's not love. That's not self-denial. That's not sacrificial love like Christ loves the church. Men, we need to communicate with our wives. We need to pay attention to them, to know when something's happening in their lives, when something's changing. We need to attend to the children's needs. I used to believe that I couldn't hear my children at 2 o'clock in the morning when they woke up. I used to pretend that that was the case, but I can't do that anymore. Honey, I really hear them. Uh, We need to attend to their needs. We need to take them for a day every once in a while and let our wives get off and have their tanks filled back up. We need to respond to fix-it projects around the house the first time it's mentioned. Not because we're saluting and saying, yes, ma'am, but because we're, in fact, saluting to the Lord and saying, yes, sir, I will give the same kind of love that you gave the church. Uh, This is a tough one, but uh, maybe it means we need to uh, give up a fishing trip or a hunting trip with the guys once in a while. Stay at home to care, to love our wives. It means that we need to surprise her every once in a while with a note or a card or some flowers or just a call from the office to say, I love you. I've been thinking about you. I want you to know what an important part you are in my life and how thankful I am that God has given you to me. You see, we're really talking about the same responsibility for men that Paul enjoins women to have in verses 22 to 24. We're talking about two sides of the same coin. A wife is commanded to submit to her husband, which results in service. A husband is commanded, on the other hand, to love sacrificially, which results in service. Hence the command in verse 21 to submit mutually one to the other. But we can't do that if we don't know what our wife's needs are. So we need to be pursuing them. We need to be asking her questions. Men, what are your, what are your wife's greatest concerns? What are your wife's greatest needs? What are your wife's greatest dreams and hopes and aspirations or fears? We need to become students of our wives. If you're in business, probably once a quarter or at least once a year, you sit down and you develop a plan for that business so that it succeeds. We need to do the same thing in our homes. Men, we need to take an afternoon with the Lord and ask the Lord what direction he wants us to lead our families in and what objectives and goals he wants us to have for our wife and for our children We need to commit those to prayer. We need to talk to our wives about those plans, to share them with her, to pray with her about them. Because that's the only way that our marriages are going to succeed. And that's what God's called us to. And frankly, that's what makes submission easier. I, I don't think we men realize how difficult it is for wife, for a wife to be cast in the role that God has given them. 
but we can make our, their submission much easier and much more delightful if we lead in that kind of way. Our aim ought to be the same as Christ's aim, to make the church more beautiful or to make our wife more beautiful. Uh, in other words, we're going to be held accountable for their spiritual growth and for their beauty of character. Uh, accountability is part of headship. What that means is that, is, is that if, if, if we don't lead, God is going to have our heads because we're going to have to account to him. To whom did God ask uh, in the garden who sinned? To whom did God come? He came to Adam. Adam, where are you? Romans 5 says that Adam was held responsible for their sin. And God will hold us responsible for our wives' growth and development. How do we do that? How do we as men help our wives, wives to grow? Well, we, we should do it the same way that Christ does. In verse 26 it says that he, he cleansed the church by the washing of water with the word. In other words, we need to be involved in communicating with our wives. That would be the, the word, word with a small w. And then in leading them spiritually, the word with a capital W. Uh, we need to be involved in, in being transparent and open with them and reading the scriptures together and praying. We don't have to be more mature than our wives. We don't have to understand everything but we do need to open the scriptures with them and read them together and pray together and ask God to somehow use that to lead and to help her grow. And we certainly need to make sure she's growing in other contexts, perhaps in a Bible study or involved in women's ministries or in some way becoming the person that God wants her to be. Paul says in verse 28 that we're to nourish and cherish our wives in the same way that we nourish and cherish our own bodies. What does that mean, practically? Well, I think it means that we need to respect her, value her, be sure that we don't take her for granted, make sure that we treat her as an equal because she is an equal. Peter said in 1 Peter 3 that we're to grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. She is our co-equal and we're to treat her as such. Um, we ought to do that in our decision-making in our homes. You know, We as men have no corner on this market of making decisions. I think mutual submission means that we ought to be making our decisions together when at all possible. And only when we can't agree and after much prayer, then should we as men make a decision on our family's behalf. But we need to involve them, get their input in decision-making, in resolving conflict, in managing the family, in our finances, uh, in the discipline of our children or our social life. We need to seek her out. And Paul says that when we do that, when we love her in the same way that we love our own bodies, we are the better for it. And Paul is not suggesting in verse 28 and 29 a selfish motivation for loving our wives. He is simply saying that because the two become one when they say, I do, therefore, if we love our wives, we benefit from it. If they submit 
to us, they benefit from it. And conversely, if we withhold love, then we hurt ourselves. And we ought not to do that. We're just about out of time. I'll leave verses 32 and 33 for you to read on your own. But let me, let me just summarize by saying a couple things. First of all, this command to, uh, to submit and to love sacrificially is a choice. And it's a choice that ought not to depend on anything that our spouse is doing. Whether our spouse is fulfilling their end of the bargain or not should not matter. And if it does, then you and your mate are living in in what I call a 50-50 relationship. She gives 50% and you'll give 50%. Uh, And those relationships fail because no one ever seems to quite live up to another person's expectations of where that 50% is. And Paul is commanding here that we each give 100% regardless of what our spouse is doing. That means that we're never justified in saying, I can't love her uh, sacrificially because she's unlovely or disagreeable or because she nags or makes it tough for me to, uh, to get along with. Uh, nor can uh, you ladies say to, you, to anyone else, or at least of which to your husband, I can't submit because you, uh, you aren't giving me the kind of leadership that I need. You have a choice. We all have a choice. And we've got to respond, regardless of where our mate is at. That's where we begin. It's a beautiful picture of it in the Old Testament where David was being chased throughout the desert by Saul uh, and yet refused to defend himself or refused, rather, to try and put Saul to death, even though Saul was trying to snuff out his life. And the reason David refused to do that is because he said that, that Saul was God's anointed. God would have to take care of him. And likewise, in marriage, your spouse is God's anointed for you. And that means that out of conscience to God, you have got to respond. You need to respond by loving, by submitting, and by serving. And leave that other person to the Lord to change if he needs to be changed or if she needs to be changed. And then finally, what we're talking about here requires a tremendous amount of humility and deference and patience And it's a real mark of maturity, spiritual maturity and strength of character and self-control. And you and I cannot do this in our own power. That's why Paul begins in, in verse 18 by commanding that we be filled with the Spirit because it's only the Lord's Spirit working through us that allows us to do what God has called us to do. If this happens in our marriage, it'll happen because we're depending on the Lord. We're clinging to Him. And if both husband and wife are willing to play these roles, to fit into God's plan, then we can win the gold. And we can give an Olympic performance for him because he's our captain. He's the one we're responding to. Let's pray. Father, we confess 
our weakness and our failure. None of us are perfect in this area. Yet, Lord, we see that that you have a specific design for marriage that we sometimes struggle with. We give it to you today. We give those struggles and apprehensions to you. And Father, we ask you to fill us with your spirit, empower us to be the, the people, the husbands and the wives that you have called us to be. Help us to trust you with these roles that you have enjoined upon us. And Father, we trust that as we depend upon you, respond in obedience, that you might strengthen our marriages, help us to be what you've called us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.